Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers podcast with me, Jonathan Davis. To discuss this year's sequence of momentous political events and what, if anything, they mean for investors as we head into 2017, I'm joined today by Chris Rice, one of the founding partners of Sanditon Asset Management, a boutique fund management firm that was started business in 2014, uh, set up by two highly rated and award-winning fund managers with more than 30 years of combined experience working together in UK and European equities, initially at HSBC and latterly at Casnove Capital. The new firm follows a business cycle approach to investment, looking to switch the shape of their portfolios to align with the ebb and flow of the economy from growth to recession and back again. I started our conversation with the obvious question, how do this year's tumultuous political events fit into their way of thinking? So you don't think, for example, that uh, it will uh, lead to a significant change in the pace and uh, direction of the interest rate uh, regime change that you've mentioned? Not dramatically. I would say that possibly the only shorter term impact, obviously, is the market's narrative around the election of, of Donald Trump as United States president. Because, you know, everybody has a very strong opinion about what Donald Trump is about to do. But obviously he's, as yes, not uh, been inaugurated as the president. That doesn't I guess that implies, therefore, that you are of the view that the whole QE uh, monetary uh, innovation that we've had over the last seven years since the crisis, seven or eight years since the crisis, 
that was going to come to an end anyway because it had effectively run out of steam and its ability to prevent the, the business cycle reappearing. Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, we, we've written a lot and, and spoken, you know, quite consistently on this, that we felt that, you know, the, the effect under the current form of QE, whereby the central bank prints new cash to buy existing assets, or indeed assets created by the, the, the US government or the UK government, that in of itself has had almost no impact on the trajectory of growth. You know, it's a counterfactual that it's very difficult to disprove when you were at the bottom in Lehman's back in 2008. But ultimately, the effect has predominantly been an asset market. So what you've seen is an enormous compression of yields across all asset markets, bonds, credit, equity, property. Uh, but you've seen very little in terms of its effect on real variables, real wages, real productivity, real growth. It's had almost, it's had almost zero And I'd be cautious to say that the hegemony of the central bankers is still very strong, but we sense politically it's beginning to weaken. You know, you, you started by asking me, you know, what do I think will be the effect of politics? I said in the short run, I don't think it'll be a lot, but actually in the long run, it could be a lot because ultimately, I do think Brexit and Trump is part of a process of democratic distaste at how the elite, including central banks, have dealt with the. the for now, but you can never quite uh, dismiss these guys, whether they're going to come back and do some more. We would say, I suppose, in conclusion, that the most ludicrous bit of QE in this cycle has to be um, Mark Carney's cut in interest rates and further extension of QE after Brexit, because as an economist, you know, the biggest thing that happened after Brexit was uh, the collapse in sterling. Now, that was a huge loosening of policy at an already loose rate for the UK relative to other economies. You did really did not need to put fuel on the fire by cutting rates and doing more QE. The currency had done its job for you. Yeah. I think these central banks are, I think people are beginning to work out that it isn't, hasn't been the, the panacea that we'd all hoped, I think. So Paul Marks and Mr. Carney, but if we go back to the, the business cycle, we've heard obviously a lot of people talking about secular stagnation and lower for longer and, and lower forever even in some cases. But what you're saying is that when the business cycle reasserts itself, is, is it going to look very familiar to those of us who've been through these business cycles before? Is it going to be driven by inflation rising and, and interest rates rising in response and, and then unemployment going up and so on? How, how do you actually characterise uh, the shape of the, uh, the change that uh, is coming upon us? No. 
differences with both the UK and the, the European economic cycles, particularly the European cycle. Um, but if we just focus on the US for two seconds, you know, we are now at 4.6% unemployment, which is below the level of the uh, previous peak in the cycle in 2007. We've got um, unemployment claims now below 2 million, which has been an incredibly reliable uh, indicator of the turn in the business cycle. The last time we've, the last previous times we've reached 2 million have been uh, 2007, 1999 and 1987. So major turning points in both growth and markets. So we, we look at that and then we see a, a, a wage growth accelerating to the three, three and a half percent. I mean, these are current numbers, really, they're not forecasts. And you see in certain parts of the US economy, quite big parts of the US economy, tightening labor conditions. There was one US corporate that we spoke to last week that said that they are uh, budgeting for 5% wage increase next year for 17. So that for us is a classic end of cycle event. Inflation of all the variables that we look at for a business cycle is the most backward looking. It's the, it's the latest employment inflation are always the, the lagging indicators of the cycle. And when they start rising, that is normally a sign that the pressures are building. So how does that affect the real world? It's quite simple because as inflation picks up and then drags interest rates up with them towards the end of the cycle, corporate profits get squeezed by two things, falling productivity because wage growth starts going up faster than, than output prices for corporate. So you get a classic corporate profit squeeze from that perspective. And obviously as the cost of financing begins to go up, um, those corporates that use leverage start to see compression on earnings. So that is pretty much how nearly every single business cycle has ever finished and moved from an expansion into a slowdown in my experience, um, which is that compression on corporate profits because things are a little bit too hot um, then causes retrenchment by corporates. All recessions are caused by a fall in business investment. They're not caused by a, you know, a dramatic fall in consumption. They're nearly always caused by businesses uh, beginning to retrench as corporate profits begin to get squeezed, squeezed at the end of a long cycle. Those are the conditions that are exactly in place for the US today. Europe's so a little bit behind, but there are pockets where it's exactly the same. German export manufacturing's running at full capacity at the moment. Anybody who lives in the southeast of England will tell you that the southeast of England's at full capacity at the moment. Stockholm and the, you know, the southern part of Sweden's like that. For sure, Greece, southern Italy and southern Spain aren't. But if we view Europe as a continent, they're just the dull bits of the continent. And there are you know, bits of Europe that are actually growing and very quickly and where inflationary pressures are building also. So if we take your thesis as, as correct, and it's certainly uh, quite a persuasive one, uh, can we say anything about the timing of this, though? Because normally when you get an interest rate cycle, I think it's true to say, you know, the equity market, for example, continues to do quite well for another, what, 12, 18 months, something like that, before you actually get the kind of the, uh, the equity market correction, I suppose, which is what most people are, are worried about. You get yields rising before then and so on. But so, so can you say anything about timing? Or, I mean, it is a bit no, of a large game. No, I think it's a valid question because, you know, it's, uh, you can, one can have a correct view, but if you're two years early, you're wrong in investment <laughs> terms. Um, and yes, I think we can. I mean, we, we have a, a fairly strong view here. The most dangerous comment for a business cycle investor like us is this time it's different. Yeah. And having told you that the real variables are not different this time, I can't then cheat by saying it's different about interest rates. And you're right that often equity 
Yes, you could have blinked and missed it, mind you. Yeah. 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 There's been a record 12 months between the first Fed rate increase. Yes. Um, so we've got this very slow trajectory from a very low rate. Now, they've just raised um, interest rates as of this month, uh, yes. second time, and indicated that they've got three more for next year. Now, our view is that they um, will be raising interest rates right through the first half and possibly even into the second half of next year. Um, we think there's two important things to say. The first one is, yes, you're right, in the first instance of when the rates go up, the market normally takes it bullishly, and the reason is, is that you get, as we're seeing at the moment, what's called a, you know, a steepening of the yield curve, because the bond yield starts going up slightly more quickly than the Fed are raising rates. Now, that's considered very positive for risk and cyclical assets, you know, effectively, most you know industrial cyclicals, commodity cyclicals, and financials do well in this environment because they tend to do well when the yield curve picks up because it's an evidence that, that there's more growth than people anticipated beforehand. And that's sort of what's happening now. I think that, that process started after Brexit, actually. So I would say we're sort of three or four or five months through that process now. Mm. And do I believe that can spill over into 2017? I absolutely think it can. So that's the first point. The second point, which is more based on our view, rather than the pure science of looking at cycles, is that we don't believe it will take a tremendous amount of increases in interest rates to move the economy into a slowdown and to move the bull market into a bear market. And our logic is quite simple on that, which is that you know, rates have remained so low for so long. Whatever growth that's happened between 2009 and today has clearly been a function of demand having been brought forward by super low rates. So, you know, if if we were in a normal cycle where you had the, the levels of growth you've seen over the last hundred years, then, you know, interest rates would have responded much more, you know, much earlier than they have done in this cycle. So what we sense is going on is that, you know, super low rates has just about got the US back to trend growth, indicative in our view that the trend growth has dropped, in fact. And that what we will see is a downturn in a cycle, in a trend. This is now slightly lower than it was 20 to 30 years ago. So our basic view is that it won't take short rates to go to 3 to 4% in the States to end the bull market. It'll probably only take need them to go to one and a half, two, um, and for bond yields to be up at three and a half, four, to actually bring in... Uh, the bull market into a bear market. A classic example is autos. This has been the longest continuous expansion of auto demand globally since the 1980s, and it's clearly been driven by super low rates. I'm sure any of your clients will know, and any of your readers will know, that actually over the last uh, six or seven years, it, you know, it's almost impossible to buy a new car without having finance thrust down your throat. That's certainly true. We obviously then come on to the uh, interesting and important question of what uh, you can do about this or what you should be preparing to do as an investor. Now, Chris, you manage uh, European funds. How are you actually preparing for what you believe is about to happen in terms of the business cycle or what is already happening? Absolutely. So the first step for us is to recognise the the very good point you made, which was that the first interest rate increase doesn't kill a bull market and actually tends to be 
quite good for risk assets. So we have had a tactical position for the second half of this year, which we're still carrying over into the early part of 2017, in selected um, cyclical and financial stocks to take advantage of the turn in performance for these stocks. They've, they've been quite dull performers in this cycle, rather surprisingly. Investors in an incomeless world have been very driven towards actually higher yielding safe stocks than they have the normal risky stocks. So for the time being, we, we've been holding those in the second half this year to, to, in recognition that the first stage of the interest rate curve move tends to be favorable to equities. We've actually, this month, started to reduce that position, and we anticipate that we'll spend much of Q1 selling more of these sorts of stocks. We're really talking here about um, Italian financials, um, uh, selected banks across the, the region, steel companies, for example. So we've had those stocks, but we've started selling them, and I expect by the end of Q1 we'll be broadly out or underweight that type of stock. Now, what will we have left? Well, we've got two bull arguments for how to protect yourself in what we expect will be a fairly disruptive bear market. The first one is cash. Now, I know that's a controversial issue sometimes, but our basic logic in this cycle, compared to previous cycles, is that a large proportion of the defensive stocks that we would normally turn to, based on our view that the downturn is coming, um, and you need lower beta and more defensive businesses, is that those are the very stocks that have done brilliantly in this cycle. Their ratings, their, their, their valuations, are now anywhere between 20 and 30 times earnings. Now, when you got to buy the very same stocks back in 2007 ahead of the 2008 bear market, um, these stocks were typically on 14 to 16 times earnings. They're just not as cheap as they've historically been. The second one, which is slightly a technical point, which is that their betas, their, their responsiveness to, to equities generally have risen because they've been so successful and everyone's owning them. So the beta of Unilever, for example, is nearly one, whereas in 2007 it was about 0.7. So everything else being equal, when the market fell 10%, Unilever would only fall 7. Well, this time around, if the market falls 10%, one would expect Unilever to fall 10%. So we think those sorts of defences won't defend you as well as they did during the 08. So you need something else? I think you need something else. So the first one is cash. And the second one is there is another type of defensive. We call them value defensives, uh, which means they tend to be lower growth but they tend to be cheaper and as such tend to protect even better actually. Now these stocks also had become a little expensive in the bull market of 13 and to, through to 14, 15. But thankfully this year they've had a tough year, a really tough year in fact. So the two industries I'm really thinking about here are pharmaceuticals and telcos. Both are industries that are, are structurally not very high growth industries. They have some growth but not excessively high growth. Um, but you've seen significant deratings. So just as a couple of examples, two big holdings of the portfolio in the pharmaceutical sector, uh, Novartis and Bayer. Well, 18 months ago, Bayer was on a P of 18 and Novartis was on a P of 20. Today, Bayer is on a P of 11.5 and, and Novartis is on a P of 14. So you've seen a big derating. So not only the defensive, but they're finally cheap. So we're, re- you know, we're, we're quite encouraged by that. So we've been started buying the pharmaceuticals. The second area is telcos. Um, you tend to look 
you've seen something like a 25% de-rating this year. So thankfully, in what is about to be the eighth year of this bull market, two of the big defensive sectors, telcos and farmers, have suddenly got cheap right at the end of the cycle, which we actually view as a, a fantastic tactical opportunity to, to, to get along those and overweight those businesses going into the downturn. Just in the, <coughs> just in the telco uh, sector, as you, as you mentioned, a couple of stocks in the pharma sector, what kind of stocks are you, are you, um, well, are you talking about here? brings me to my final question Chris which is this and it may be one you, you choose not to answer <laughs> if we are going to go into the normal business cycle we are going to have another bear market another recession is it going to be a bad one or is it going to be an okay one in the sense that you mentioned before you highlighted some of the uh, the worst uh, downturns in the business cycle that we've had you is there anything you can actually say in answer to that question That would 
be my bias of thinking. For the stock market, however, I think it could be more disruptive than that. And the, the, my basic logic in that, and this comes back to the first question you asked, which in a way, which was that about QE, which is that QE has got asset prices up, but it hasn't got the variables that support asset prices up. Things like growth, wages, profits, all those factors of production have not risen to the same level as asset prices have, because asset prices have been supported by QE. So, you know, for us, we think there is a risk that there are price shocks in asset markets mm. because they are too high in relation to the real variables, which will be in a downturn, but perhaps the real variables are the ones that we don't need to worry about quite as much as the financial ones. That would be the, the strong message I would give, that I can't forecast precisely how bad the downturn will be, but going into the downturn, And so we have to hope that um, despite all the efforts that uh, the central banks and, and policymakers have made over the last few years, that we are in a position where we can actually do something to try and ameliorate those effects if and when that kind of uh, situation arises. Well, that's right. And that's been our constant criticism of keeping QE and on too long and, and, and rates too low for too long, because it would have been better probably to have raised rates much earlier, accepted slower growth so that you had some firepower to deal with the problem when a proper downturn came. Um, and that's been our constant criticism. So, you know, we, we are encouraged by the fact that the US are finally getting some short rates back up so that you can cut them again <laughs> when, when, when activity begins to fall. I think where the real issues could lie, and this is for another day, I suspect, um, is with the Europeans and the Japanese that are still partaking of quantitative easing eight years into a bull market. Anyway, we'll leave that one for another day. But at least with both, you know, the US and hopefully, I suspect, over time, the UK, because I do think the UK will probably raise rates as we go through 17. You know, you'll get to a position where you've raised rates enough so that you have some tools left to, to help when times get a bit tougher. You have been listening to a Moneymakers podcast hosted by the author and professional investor, Jonathan Davis. An archive of all our podcasts can be found on the website www.money-makers.co and also on iTunes and several other popular podcasting channels. We are an editorially independent business with a primarily educational purpose. If you are interested in investment and have enjoyed this conversation, I do hope you'll join me again for more discussion of current topics with leading professional investors. Thank you for listening.